The reading for today is from Proverbs chapter 4, verses 20 to 27. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look fo directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right, thank you, Nick, very much. <clears throat> so we started last week a seven-week series in the book of Proverbs, and I announced that we are also going to be reading out of the Psalms, uh, sort of um, putting those together just to be able to read more of God's Word on Sunday morning. And so we're going to be looking at Psalm, uh, Proverbs chapter 4, but before we get there, I want to just read for you Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, perfect timing. That was absolutely beautiful. Yes! <laughs> Wasn't set up at all. God is so good, I'm telling you. <laughs> Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea, seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray together. Lord God, we are grateful for your word and its truth. And as we study in Proverbs this morning, uh, I pray that uh, we would see your wisdom and the call to your wisdom. Uh, but also as we just think about the words of the Psalms, that we would we would see your love and your care and your glory as well. God, let us rest in that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we uh, talked about, in, in introducing this series in the Psalms, we talked about what wisdom is and that there's a call between uh, Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly, and there were some observations about wisdom. So we got introduced to the whole idea, and we found out that wisdom is good and wisdom is life. What we're going to talk about this week is that uh, wisdom needs to be pursued quite diligently, that there has to be uh, a willingness to set some things aside in order to just go after wisdom, that it needs to be a focus of our life. And then the next five weeks after that, we're going to get into more specific topics in, re in regard to and related to wisdom, things like contentment and lust and self-control uh, and other items as well. 
So for today, we're going we're gonna to really look at this idea of focusing and diligent pursuit uh, of wisdom. And I want to start by saying, uh, I, I, want, I want you just to think about something as, as we kind of get started and as we go along. I want you to think about this. Now, all the things that you and I want for ourselves, and when I say that, I'm not talking about wealth and career success. I'm talking about our character and our reputation because there are things in, in that realm that we want for ourselves as well. Things like contentment and perseverance and diligence and thoughtfulness and legacy and wisdom. If you read about these things in scripture, you notice in scripture that these are the things that are not just given to us by God like as a spiritual gift, like they get sort of plugged in and suddenly we have this ability. But rather, these are things spoken about in Scripture where God specifically says, you have to press into this, you have to be willing to sacrifice for it, you have to live life in the gospel, experience these things in relationship to the gospel and allow the gospel to be tested against these experiences so that you can gain them and understand them better. Patience steadfastness, faithfulness, endurance, all of those things. And wisdom is a big part of that. Wisdom is something, again, that God says, you don't get just, just, to just say, well, I know God, therefore I'm wise. He says, no, you have to be called to this and then work on it. You have to go deep. You have to pursue it. Here you go. You have to ruminate on wisdom. Now, I will tell you, I love words and words. I'm kind of a word geek, and I love that word ruminate, it's, it's got an interesting origin and meaning. Over Word ruminate means to think deeply about something, to puzzle over, ponder, and literally it means to chew on something, to chew on something. Uh, Stephanie, our operations manager, says that my favorite synonym for ruminate is to noodle on something. I don't know where I picked that up, but I know I use that word a lot. I'm going to noodle on this, but I mean ruminate. Uh, the, word, the word ruminate actually comes from cows. It's, it's a cow word, okay? A ruminant is a mammal that is able to acquire nutrients from plant-based foods by fermenting the food in a specialized stomach prior to digestion, principally through microbial actions. So this is where a, this animal gets its nutrients. So start making the connections here, okay? The process typically requires the fermented ingesta, which is known as cud, to be regurgitated and chewed again and again, over and over, and the process of rechewing the cud to further break down the plant matter and stimulate digestion and receive those nutrients is called rumination. So a cow is known as a ruminant. Now think about this. In order for the cow to have nutrients, it has to chew on the cud over and over and over. This process is important to the life of the cow. And so to ruminate on wisdom helps us to understand that to, that to chew on uh, God's wisdom, to, to, to ponder over it, to think about it deeply is what is going to help give us life. So you apply this to wisdom in particular. I love this quote from an author named Nicholas Carr. Nicholas Carr a few years ago wrote a fantastic book called The Shallows. He writes this, I was once a scuba diver when it came to wisdom literacy, and words. Now I am on a jet ski. I just skim the surface quickly, and I am the worse for it. 
Mentally and spiritually, I am out of shape. I need to get back into the wisdom gym, but it takes work and time and diligence. I am a fat boy who can't even read a psalm anymore. And, and, and again, I, 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 I love the world that we live in with all the wonderful technology, but there are challenges with the technology. We have gotten so good at just scrolling that we never really slow down and start to take things in and think about them and ruminate on them. It's amazing how many people who do read scripture are really reading it informationally just to get through it rather than formationally. I would argue that sometimes or oftentimes even, it's better to read two verses and really think about them and pray over them than it is to read three chapters and really not remember anything that you've read. So much of the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs, there's 31 chapters, and the first nine chapters uh, signifies a section of Proverbs. It's set up as a father, Solomon, giving counsel to his son and telling him about lady wisdom, telling him that life and success and fulfillment and contentment, all of these things that we want in our life comes through serious engagement with and submission to God's wisdom and will. And the father makes many appeals to this son, whether it's a real son or a fictitious son just for literary technique, it doesn't matter. But he makes many of these appeals. And, and in chapter 4, we already have the seventh such appeal. Verses 20 through 27 represent the seventh appeal that he's making. And this, uh, these appeals that he is making throughout the first nine chapters include a call to know Lady Wisdom, but not just know Lady Wisdom. It is a call also to receive Lady Wisdom, to honor Lady Wisdom, to trust Lady Wisdom, to walk with Lady Wisdom, to maintain the tradition of wisdom, and to know that wisdom is what offers life, and foolishness is what offers death and destruction. And this seventh appeal is a call for us to maintain and protect a heart of wisdom. That's the core of this, to drink in and internalize wisdom to such an extent that we not just, we not only know wisdom, but we also just can't help but live it out in our lives, manifest it on the outward side of our lives as well. So that's where we get a big idea for this passage. Here it is nurture your heart, for from it comes either life or death. And, and, and throughout scripture, you hear this theme. So let me reread this uh, little passage again. We'll unpack it, and we'll end with some application. So Solomon says, My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away your crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all of your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. So he starts, verse 20, literally he just says, be on guard. Don't just hear me, but listen in a way that leads to transformation. You know, we, we have a lot of messages coming at us in this world today, and we hear a lot of things. The question is, are we listening at a level where it leads to transformation? 
And very often we are, but it's transformation in the wrong direction, and that's eventually what he's going to get to. So we have to be careful not only of what we're listening to and how we're listening to it, but where it's going to take us as well. And verse 21 says, and don't be just on guard in general, but very specifically, you need to guard your heart. You need to nurture your heart. Watch what goes in your heart and watch out for the attacks on your heart because the world is just going to attack your heart relentlessly and over and over and try to wear you down. And if you're wondering what the definition of heart is, it's different than the way we use heart in our vernacular today. It's not just our feelings or our passions. The way uh, the ancient Hebrews and in the Greek New Testament, the way they use that word heart was to specifically talk not just about your feelings and passions, but also about your mind, so your logic, and also about your soul. In other words, everything on the inside that makes you who you are. It's everything. So it's mind, heart, behavior, all of those things. Solomon says, guard everything in your life that makes you God's child. Nurture and care for everything that will make you what he created you to be. And then verse 22 and 23, he gives us the main principle. Wisdom is life. It's, it's the beginning of life. It's the wellspring of life. It's where we gain life from. There is no wisdom in wickedness and death. And, again, the challenge is that you, can, uh, you can't just acquire wisdom. You have to also nurture it and continue to pursue it. Here you go. If you're married, I'll just speak to the guys for a second. Guys, if you're married and you don't continue to pursue your wife and date your wife, you're making a big mistake. That whole idea of, hey, man, I loved you. I married you, didn't I? I'll let you know if I change my mind. That is not going to work for you, okay? We can't treat wisdom the same way uh, either. Wisdom is life. It's going to take focus, diligent, and sacrificial effort. But Solomon says it is well worth the effort. And he uses that word vigilance. That word vigilance is always in, in ancient times associated with a city's watchman. The watchman who would either be in the tower of the city or on the wall of the city looking out for anything that might, uh, any nefarious attack that might come on the city. So he's, he, he's comparing our hearts, our inner lives to a city and the fact that that city needs to be defended. And not only does it need to be defended, but it needs to also plan how it's going to defend and how it's going to be able to maintain its establishment as a city. And then he uses this word life here. And we should talk a little bit about how the word life is used as well. Wisdom is the very wellspring of life, he says. And he's not just talking about a life where you just kind of get by and survive. That's not it. He's talking about a life that is thriving and flourishing. One author writes that synonyms for the word life here would include these, include these words. Not necessarily the totality of it, but would include these words. Fulfillment, purpose, joy, contentment, steadfastness, assurance, security, legacy, and integrity. You know, we, we throw this word integrity around all the time, and we hear it, and we think, well, it means honesty and, and hard work and all that. But really here, the word integrity uh, literally means whole or complete or unfragmented. Here's another way of saying it, without flaw. 
It's actually where we get the word sincere. Oh, he's a really sincere person. She's a wonderfully sincere person. What does the word sincere really mean? We actually get it from a conflation of two Latin words that means without crack or without flaw. And the word comes from like first, second, and third century pottery making. So, so people would make pots and, and different trinkets out of clay, and sometimes they would get cracked. Uh, or maybe they would break. And so what they would do is rather than discard it and throw it away, if they thought that they could save it, what they would do is they would melt wax into the crack, and then they would polish it and shine it as best that they could. They'd get some dye and try to match the color of the pot or whatever and kind of gloss over it, and then they would set it out to go ahead and sell. And the astute pottery buyer would be able to find those flaws and cracks because he is looking for pottery that is sincere without a crack or without a flaw. Uh, this one's pretty obvious. You, you, even the not-so-smart pottery buyer wouldn't buy this one. But you get the idea there. All of these things, here's, here's what wisdom does for us. It makes our hearts whole. It keeps us focused. It keeps us uh, from fragmenting away. And as he eventually gets to in this passage, it keeps us from turning to the left and turning to the right, which would be fragmenting our heart, losing our focus in our heart. And then you look at those last four verses, whereas verses 20 through 23 speak to our inner life, there is always a correlation from our inner life to our outer life. You just cannot miss this correlation. If we pour wisdom into our hearts, if we embrace wisdom, if we pursue wisdom, then what comes out of our hearts, and here you go, Solomon uses three areas, our speech, our eyes, and our feet. So what we say, what we see, and where we go, all of those things will correspond to what is in our heart. And, and, and if we have wisdom in our heart, then those three things, what we say, what we see, and where we go, will be protected and provided for. This is a really important principle. And Jesus understood this principle and actually taught it in a fairly negative way, but taught it nevertheless in Mark chapter 7 where he, writes, where he said this, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and are outward manifestations of what is within. If you don't take care of your heart, if your heart isn't immersed in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the wisdom of Jesus Christ, this is what will end up coming out of your heart. Jesus teaches that the wellspring of life is dependent upon a heart that is guarded, nurtured, and submitted to the wisdom and will of God, just like his was. Otherwise, left without God's wisdom and will, our hearts will be filled with and express wickedness and death. And Solomon says in verse 26, if you do this, all of your ways will be sure. You will always walk on a firm foundation. In the New Testament, it always talks about Jesus as being the rock, the cornerstone, the foundation. And, and he is the sure footing of life. Are you going to stand on Jesus or are you going to stand on sand? Because when the storms of life come, the sand is going to wither away and you're going to fall down. Jesus is the fir firm foundation. He's the sure footing. He is God's wisdom. 
Jesus is God's wisdom. And then verse 27 is just the perfect capper. We need to be turning our eyes uh, to God and staying on his path because when we turn our eyes away from God's path, God's ways, God's wisdom, when we turn ourselves away from Jesus, it'll lead us to stumble. It'll lead us to fall down. It'll lead us to be punished and hurt. Punished not pejoratively, but you know, it hurts when you fall down. It really, I, sometimes I go trail running less and less as I get older in the, in, in the mountain preserves, and sometimes there are rocks that are just sticking up and I don't see them and I end up on the ground. And it's punishing. It hurts. I didn't look. I got punished. It, it'll lead us to harm and destruction. You think about construction sites. Now, I've never been one for construction sites, but I've talked to guys who are at construction sites, and they say the first thing they do with a construction site before anybody goes and works there is they go and they look at the site, and they fill in all the holes, and they put up tape around all the dangerous areas. They prepare the construction site for guys to be on there so that they can go on there and not fall down and stumble and get hurt. Well, that's the idea of what's going on with our hearts here. This is a picture of wisdom in our hearts. We need to be prepared and we need to defend. We need a watchman on our heart. And that watchman needs to not only be looking out for us, but also thinking ahead and thinking deeply about things. And so we need to pursue wisdom and learn wisdom and ruminate on wisdom and understand that wisdom not only protects us, but it also leads us in life. It's not just defensive. It's also how we walk ourselves out in life. And I know some of you will say, how is that? You know, there are no shortcuts to this. There's no newfangled way to figure this out. You, you got to read scripture. You got to pray. You, you, you got to come and, and, and study the Bible and, and listen. Um, you, you've got, here you go. You want to know how to learn the scriptures? Be a teacher of the scriptures. The teacher always learns more than anybody else. That's another way of doing it. But there are no shortcuts. You've got to be in community. There's really no shortcut to this. Um, there are things that help. You can get the Bible on CD or download it or whatever and listen to it as you're driving. There are helps, but ultimately, it's going to take some time and some commitment. And then he ends with this metaphorical concept of the left and the right. It's actually a pretty well-known and simple context, uh, uh, concept in their context. It means that when we take our eyes off God's path, we will lead ourselves into evil and destruction. Now, 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 hear me. We will lead ourselves into evil and destruction, both to the left and to the right. Uh, it'll lead us to false gods. Literally, false gospels or false good news. This world is filled with all kinds of good news that is really false, that isn't sustainable, that isn't deep, and, and that is really kind of a con job. And it's fascinating because Paul makes this argument as well in the New Testament in his first letter to the church uh, at Corinth. The message of the gospel, Paul says, the message of God's love and his desire for us to live a life of purpose and fruitfulness it never changes from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And, and the message of salvation, redemption, and victory is always centered, Paul says, on, God's, uh, on, on who God is, on his wisdom and his will, and the fact that he has done all of this in and through Jesus and is continuing to do it through the resurrected Christ and the filling of the Holy Spirit for us today. 
And he says this. He says, you need to resist the false gospels of your day. And he says it this way in his context. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. He says, it sounds like foolishness to people that hear that our Savior was crucified and died, and then somehow three days later was raised. That sounds foolish to many people, but it pleases God to go ahead and give this message. And then he says, here are the false gospels in our world today. For the Jews demand signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So the false God, the false good news for the Jew in Paul's time was signs and wonders because this represented power. Signs and wonders for the Jew represented power, and the Jews were desperate for power. They were occupied by the Romans at the time, and therefore they wanted the power to throw off the, the oppressive and obstructive yoke of the Romans at the time. So their idol, their false god, their fa- they kept saying, if we could just get the Romans out of here, then life would be fine. Have you ever said that about, if I just close this deal, then life would be great. If I just get her to say yes, then life would be great. If I just get him to leave me alone, then life would be great. And, and life goes on, and it's great for about five minutes, but then you have more challenges. That's the problem here. The false god, though, for the Gentile was worldly wisdom, the pursuit of knowledge and scholarship and to be perceived by others as erudite. So Paul says to the Jews here, he says, you want real power? You want to know what real power is? You want a true sign? You need to look at the cross. That's the true sign that you're seeking in your life. In the cross of Christ, we find the power to defeat the most powerful and important enemies in our lives, and that would be sin and guilt and death. That's true power to be able to defeat those things. And the resurrection is is the sign that points to the fact that this is the awesome power. And then he says to the Gentiles, you want genuine wisdom and knowledge? Look at the cross. The cross made it possible for Jesus, God, to be both just and justifier at the same time. He executes justice, and he is able to justify those who are in need of righteousness. And he did that at the cross. He was just in the sense that he went to the cross and took on our sin at the cross for us so that we wouldn't have to go to the cross, and then he imputes that justification and righteousness to us. He is just and he is justifier, and, and, he's, and he says to the Greek, look at that, that's true wisdom. Isn't that what you've been pursuing? Isn't that what you want? And so Paul says to both, your false gods, your false gospels, neither are capable or sustainable because the wisdom, the true wisdom of the world is found at the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the salvation and the redemption of God. The cross is the straight path. Everything that isn't the cross All false gospels lie to the left and lie to the right of the cross. 
And the same is true of our false gods today. They all lie to the left and to the right of God's path, the path of who Jesus is, the cross and the resurrection. These gods, without Jesus, these false gospels, without the power of Jesus, have absolutely no power. And we pursue them to our frustration. But I'll tell you, they do entice us, don't they? Are we not enticed by power? Are we not enticed by status? We are enticed by control, by politics, by causes, by wealth, and by sex. And I've only named a few. But notice something similar about all these things that I just named. There's really nothing inherently bad about any of those things, right? They're not necessarily bad things. The problem comes when we make them the ultimate thing in our life. When, when, when we set aside Jesus in some fashion or form, and, and we make that the ultimate pursuit in our life, rather than the gospel being the ultimate pursuit, and allowing those things to flow through God's discretion out of that pursuit of the gospel. Uh, you know what else is interesting about this? Uh, this is something I've been wrestling with a lot in the, in, in the last several months. And this is the real danger for most of us, myself included. The question isn't either or. That's what I found. It's not that we're jettisoning Jesus for these things. But instead, we're doing something that in many ways is even worse because it presents a false sense of security. We're taking the gospel of Jesus and then we're adding these things to it and saying, this will make the gospel even better better. It's a new modern or postmodern gospel that is Jesus plus something better gospel. That is a huge, huge mistake, adding these things to Jesus. The, the gospel is one thing. It's Jesus. His grace for our folly. His righteousness for our sinfulness. His life for alls, uh, ours. You need to understand that the gospel plus anything is a false gospel. Jesus plus anything, anything is a false gospel. Because as human beings, what we do is the minute we add any little thing to the gospel, that becomes our focus. And Satan uses that to pull us away. Even as you heard Charlie say up here, even guilt. Guilt and sacrifice can become false gospels as well. Works can become false gospels. I got Jesus, but I got to work hard. I got to make sure Jesus knows that I'm worthy of his grace. That is a false gospel. We do this all the time. So think of those false gospels that we love so much. Wealth, for instance. There's no wealth greater than knowing and following Jesus and understanding his love for us. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Rich in what? Rich in life. Rich in him. One person says this, one great attribute of wisdom is when wisdom calls you to reorder your loves. It's not that you have to stop loving other stuff but you need to reprioritize those loves. Jesus always has to be the focused love, the center of our love. 
How about status? There's no greater status than our righteousness in him. Romans 3 says this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, our status is righteousness in Jesus. What better status is there than that? Well, 1,500 friends on Facebook, that's pretty good. There's no power better than Jesus' power over sin, guilt, and death. Romans chapter 8. This is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set us free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by our flesh, could not do by sending his son. The law could never save us. His son can. How about control? I, we say we want control, and even if we don't admit we want I talked about this a little bit last week. We're all control. We, we desperately want control. But really, um, do you really want control? I know it's a silly movie illustration, but I think they got this right. Did you rem- Some of you remember. Bruce Almighty, remember that? And he, how he, okay, and, and how disastrously that ended for him when he was put in control of everything. You know, he had the millions of post-it notes, and then he answered every prayer request, yes, and it was total. Here you go. Bruce was given total control, and chaos resulted. Now, of course, if I were given total control, I'd do it a little bit differently, Total chaos, total chaos. There is no control like the sovereign control of God. Again, Romans 8. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what, we pray, uh, what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We don't even know what to pray and the Spirit intercedes for us. And he, the Spirit, who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's great control, and I'm glad he has it. Politics. Who's a better king than God? This is not a trick question. By the way, let me just say this about politics. I'm just going to continue on this. Uh, You and I are products of what we ingest. You and I are products of what we ruminate on. There is no way out of this. If you're constantly ingesting from one field, you cannot reap from another field. It just doesn't happen. If if all that you and I are watching and listening to and reading, which is true for some of us, I know, is political commentary... You will therefore be shaped and nurtured away from Jesus and toward that commentary. There is no two ways about it. That will become your identity and who you are and what you're doing on social media. That's what you will become. You will be moved away from Jesus and toward false kings. The false king of the Democratic Party. The false king of the Republican Party. The false king of the of the Green Party, the false king of Donald Trump, the false king of Barack Obama, the false king of Hillary Clinton, the false king of Sean Hannity or Rachel Maddow, the false king of the Los Angeles Dodgers. I, you know, whatever it is that you're ingesting right now, 
okay? I can say that because I like the Cubs, all right? How about if your thing is causes? I'm cause-oriented. I'm getting on the bandwagon with causes, social justice and all of that. You know what God's causes are? Have you ever checked that out? Over and over and over and over, God says, I love and care about the lost, the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, the poor, and the prisoner. How can you and I improve on that? That's just plain arrogance. Instead, we should look where God is working, and we should go and join him in that work. Because he's working in all of those areas. He can't help himself but work in those areas. And we can join him by the power of his spirit and join him rather than doing it under our power. Uh, Two of our core values at Redemption Church, we have seven core values. Two of them, one of them is that there's no little people in no little places. And the other one is that we do... Uh, uh, if God does not build the house, then the workers labor in vain. If we're doing this, all of this under our own power, we're just laboring in vain. Okay? Sex. You knew I'd get to it sooner or later. It, it is stunning to me, um, and I'm not a prude, but it is stunning to me the number of people today who find their soul and complete identity, character, and self in how they practice sexual pleasure. That's it. That's their identity. The first thing that they want to say about themselves is how they are oriented or how they practice sexual pleasure. The first thing. It's just fascinating to me. God has a distinct and good sexual ethic that we humans who were created in his image are called to honor and practice. And I want you just to... And I know every analogy breaks down at some point, but think about it this way. Uh, if we would, we, would we ever think it would, would be wise to take a gaggle of four and five-year-olds and give them a healthy supply of matches, lighter fluid, and combustible items, and then completely turn our backs on them and let them figure it out? Would, how many of us would go, sign me up for that? That sounds really good. Okay, total disaster, right? And then you would think it foolish on the part of the four and five-year-olds if they came back and and got mad at you for intervening and having an opinion about the way they wanted to practice their pyromania. (laughs) We're just so oppressive, right? Okay, but that's what our world is doing with sex and God. That's exactly what it's doing. We know better, God. We know better. This good and wonderful thing, God created it, and it's good, and it's wonderful, and it's broken now. And it keeps getting broken more and more and more. And think of the problems it causes us when it's broken. What's really ironic about this is that someday we're all going to realize how vapid this sexual identity pursuit was, and we're going to be sitting around, generally as we're getting older, and we'll be saying, well, it really wasn't that big of a deal. Frozen yogurt is more important to me right now. Um, Tim Keller writes this, and, and I'll make the connection as we close. The birth of Christianity actually helped human beings embrace their emotions. Unlike the thinkers of classic antiquity, Christians regarded emotions as something not to be ignored or suppressed, 
but to be examined and redirected toward God. Unfortunately, the new late modern or postmodern narrative, however, goes beyond merely understanding and directing our passions to enthroning them. We've made them our king. We've made control our king. We've made power our king. We've made causes our king. We've made sex our king. We have the wrong kings. We have false kings. We have false gospels. There really is only one king. I know you're in church, you're going, you're supposed to say that, but it's true. It doesn't mean it isn't true. Our king is Jesus. He is the true gospel. And I would call you to not accept any substitutes for that. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth. Again, as always, uh, it's challenging to us, uh, but that is good. We need to be challenged. We can't just live in our comfort zones and think that everything is going to turn out okay. And so by the power of your Holy Spirit, the resurrected Christ, by your good and gracious love in our lives, Father, we ask that you would uh, help us to engage with these things, help us to seek who you are, your wisdom and your will, and we ask that in Jesus' name, and we ask that we do it by the power of your Holy Spirit, amen. So we're